Today we have Alan Stewart on the show. You're never too old to start investing in real estate. Alan Stewart is a great example of how anyone can get started in real estate, no matter their age or experience. It took him five years to pull the trigger on his first real estate investment, but he learned and he applied himself until he was successful. Now he's on a mission to help others do the same. In this episode, Alan shares his background in management consulting, how he got started in real estate, the problems they solve in real estate, and he and his partner's mission to create an institution focused on buying high-quality assets in high-quality areas. Listen and learn. Before we jump into the intro, if you have interest in learning how to invest passively, check out my five-step process for passively investing in real estate. You can download it for free by going to darrenbatchelder.com backslash learn and then select the free PDF. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Alan before we start the show. Alan lives in the DFW area. He graduated from Texas A&M with an engineering degree and spent 20 years in corporate management consulting. He's seen the wealth building power of real estate investing and he wants to share it with others. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Alan Stewart. Alan, appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Darren. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how I know Alan. Uh, we're both part of the same multifamily mentorship group here in, in the Dallas market, uh, the Brad Sumrock group. And, you know, I've seen Alan over the years at a lot of these events and I love picking his brain because he's been in the industry for a, for a long while and he always gives me great pointers. So very interested in this conversation. Um, with that first question, how many properties and how many units are you currently invested in? So sure, you know, myself have been invested in 17 properties and a little over 3,400 units uh, combined with my business partner, Jack. We've got about 7,800 units across 36 properties. Wow. And so the, the 17 properties, 3,400 units that you're personally invested in, that's a mix of passive and general partner? Right. Yeah. So it's six general partner, uh, actually five of those have now gone full life cycle uh, with the balance as a, an LP. Fantastic. So how did you... You know, tell us a little bit about your background and how you even got into the industry. Well, that's a great question. So, you know, I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, went to Texas A&M, studied engineering, and I went straight into management consulting with what was then Anderson Consulting in Cave Accenture, and I ended up having a 20-year career. Uh, Holy cow, 20-year? 
yeah, 20 years in managed consulting, never thought uh, I'd make it that far when I was probably about years two or three. It's not an easy industry, but I learned a lot. Um, but what's more, what's more interesting is in 2001, you know, I went to a conference here in Dallas and Robert Kiyosaki was speaking and he was talking about his book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And he was talking about instead of trading time for money, you should invest in assets that uh, produce cash flow. And so that was what I would say was the first light bulb that went off of what I call my real financial education or, or pragmatic financial education. And then I went on a journey for the next 11 years, you know, searching out mentors. And I took a turn at, at uh, single family investing. And, um, you know, finally in 2012, uh, I got a multifamily mentor. And that's where I got introduced to multifamily investing, which I used to think that. It was some rich guy or some big corporation that invested in multifamily. And it turns out that it's people like you and me that you know, invest in a lot of these things. And so and I've been doing that a little over 10 years. And, you know, I left my corporate job as a managing partner running the greater Texas practice for strategy consulting for Gartner. And uh, it's been just over four years ago that I've been doing this full time. And it's been a blessing because uh, I got my schedule back. And uh, in the entrepreneur world, I've met so many cool people from all kinds of backgrounds. So that's, that's how I got into it. That's huge. Um, a few things you said there. One, my, my son goes to Texas A&M and, and I don't know, there's something about people that go down there that they drink the Kool-Aid and you're, you're just sucked in and, uh, into that, that world. But, uh, so that's fantastic. Engineering. There's a lot of engineers in the multifamily space. I mean, there's a lot of different, you can come from any career path that, you know, I've, there's people that come from single family investing and they want to scale up. There's um, engineers, there's software engineers, there's doctors and lawyers, um, but there happens to be a lot of engineers. Why do you think that is? That's a good question. I mean, I guess, I guess for me, it's just, you know, kind of having that analytical background, you know, solving problems, you know, and then also for me in consulting, it was all about, you know, creating solutions and then, you know, managing big projects. And so uh, once I got that bug from Kiyosaki of, hey, there's something else, then it's kind of like my, you know, solution-oriented mind started thinking about, well, how do, how, do I, how do I learn more? How do I get into it? And when I get interested in multifamily, it's like, oh, there's so many things about it that make sense in terms of the leverage of time and experience and things like that. And, you know, I guess process-wise, it just makes sense. It's like, you know, for me, that's, that's how it works. Maybe that's that same way for other, I always tell people it's like, yeah, I study engineering, but you know, I was never really a real engineer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. That's funny though, that you said, you know, and you probably don't even realize it, but you said you like solving problems. Mm-hmm. And I know when I, when I got into this uh, about four years ago, um, my first syndication, I partnered with Raj Gupta out of mm-hmm. Chicago, and I think you know him. Yep. Um, and when we got involved, um, that's exactly what he told me. He said, Darren, you know, if you're going to like the real estate business, it's a business about solving problems. So yep. talk, talk about that a little bit. like, Because I don't really think that if you're on the outside – you really, that really makes sense. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to buy real estate and somebody else is going to manage it. And what, what does that mean? Solving problems? Sure. Well, I think it means a lot of different things. Uh, you, you know, first, 
you know, when we're, we're buying assets, of course, it's, it's places that where people live. And so it's solving for, you know, quality housing, quality, safe housing uh, for people. So that's solving a problem. And when we take over properties, especially some of the earlier ones I did were kind of deep value add properties. Uh, we were definitely improving the quality of the asset and the level of professionalism with how it was run. So that's solving that problem for the resident, but also, uh, you know, for our investors, it, you know, it's kind of like with me, it's, I didn't know there was a different way other than stocks, bonds, mutual funds, you know, investing in all the, you know, amazing tax advantages and everything else with multifamily. And so it's helping solving problem for them of, you know, how can they, you know, both keep their wealth and grow their wealth in a tax advantage manner, you know, create leg legacy for their families. But then when you get under the nuts and bolts of it, so as, as you're acquiring a deal, you got to, you know, solve the problem of a, a seller is wanting to sell a deal and you're wanting to buy a deal. And so, you know, you're coming to terms of a price and terms that makes sense. So you're solving their problem. They want to sell the asset and you want to buy it. And then, you know, I think about, you know, there's the debt side and, you know, of course the, the bank is, is wanting to manage their downside risk. And so, you know, you're, solving their problem of, hey, they want to make a return on their money, but doing it in a, you know, favorable uh, circumstance. And so, you know, sharing what your track record is and experience uh, and your balance sheet, liquidity. And so they look at all those things. So it's helping solve their problem of, you know, lending out the, the money they have on their balance sheet. And then, um, you know, we get in operations and there's, you know, there's all kinds of problems. So, you know, on the capital side, uh, so it's kind of like, well, you know, sometimes properties have deferred maintenance. So, so you know, that could be, let's say the roof is, has an issue or say it needs to be painted or it hasn't been upgraded for a while. And so, you know, you're solving the problem of, of, you know, kind of taking care of what needs to be taken care of the property and also creating a nicer product for the residents. And then on the operation side, you know, there's, you know, our residents pay rent and we collect rent. And sometimes you have to, you know, solve the problem around that uh, as well as you've got, you know, the staff that's at the property running it. And so, you know, it provides them a job. And so when you think about it, it's like, it's, it's solving a whole bunch of different problems for a whole bunch of different people. And um, I don't know, it's, I find it, I find it uh, really cool and fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's huge. You, you brought up so many different areas. Like, I think when you're just starting to get into this, you just think of, I'm going to buy a piece of real estate and how, how am I going to do that? And, and how am I going to raise the money for that? And, and you don't really think about all these other problems that are being solved, you know, all these, you know, different areas that, um, you know, issues that come up and that you have to, you know, think through what's the best way. I mean, even just picking your team, right? Who, yep. who, who should be your lender? And, you know, what debt should I put on it based on, right. you know, how long we plan on holding this asset? Um, all those things are, you know, the, the passive investor, you know, they're, they're not necessarily getting involved in that decision process. So the general partner and the sponsors are, are figuring that out. Um, hiring the property management company and the attorneys and, the, you know, all the different team members is, is critical. And then sometimes... Sometimes you have to make some changes along the way too, which is 
which is, you know, it can be tough, you know, to have to change property management companies or, or change uh, other vendors along the way. Um, it could be the rehab team, you know, is, isn't, you know, um, implementing at the quality level that you want, whatever the case may be. Um, it's not like you just buy it and you're done. Correct. Yeah. That's all those things. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh, Hey, you recently started a company with, um, another gentleman, uh, Jack Langenberg, and I was invested in one of his deals. It did very, very well, um, more than doubled our money. And, um, he was on the show episode 68. And, um, so you two have partnered up and formed a company. Can you share with the listeners, uh, the name of the company and, you know, why you guys came together and what you guys are focused on? Sure. Happy to. So the name of the company is Sapient Capital Group. And some people are like, well, what the heck does Sapient mean? And so when we were thinking about- I'm glad, I'm you know, glad branding, you're bringing that up because I was about to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, it, it actually, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, once I explain it, so- so Jack was a you know former corporate executive, also CFO, CFO, a COO, CFO type, and you know so both of us had a long career and and sapient. You know one of the things it means gaining wisdom through experience, and so you know it's kind of like we've got the battle scars you know to prove it from our corporate life, but then also have been doing multifamily a while. So that's where we thought you know sapient capital group uh, made a lot of sense for us. You know, and then it's actually been a partnership a, a long time in the making. So our very first deal that Jack and I both invested in over 10 years ago. Over 10 uh, years ago? Both, Holy cow. Yeah, over 10 years ago. Uh, and so that's actually that's actually how we met. And so we were, you know, going to, to meetings for the property and got to know each other. And then it, it turned out that we found out that both of our daughters were in a, a father-daughter program called Indian Princess. We were in different tribes, but... You know, our daughters are, you know, a year apart. And so there was kind of that connection. And, you know, we just got to know each other over time. And it's it's funny, you know, we'd actually talked about, you know, formally joining forces earlier. As a matter of fact, the property that uh, just sold uh, just three weeks ago. Uh, so we had held it just over four years. And we actually talked about partnering up uh, on that deal. So point being is, is we've been having this conversation a long time. And you know, I really respect him, you know, as a, as a family guy, good guy, uh, smart guy, willing to do work, um, which I would say is key, the GP team. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, it's just uh, something that organically happened over time. And, you know, we're excited o about it. Over a long period of time. So, you know, that's something I would like to, you know, highlight to the listeners too, is that, you know, when, when not all partnerships are formed that way, but you know, a lot of partnerships, you know, people get to know each other over years before they partner together. And, you know, so it's about getting out there and letting people know who you are, you know, and, and what you, you can bring to the table and then finding a good match. Um, because so, from the outside, I think sometimes people think, oh, you just find three or four people that want to buy a multifamily and you, you partner together. But, you know, there's a lot of, you want to know that you're partnered with somebody that is aligned with you. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the people that have told me that they've gotten into bad partnerships are the ones that have said, 
you know what? It wasn't as much like the division of responsibilities. It was more, we looked at the world differently. We had different moral mm-hmm. compass. And so, you know, time is a good way to get to know people, um, see that they, they're showing up consistently. Yeah, I agree. I always tell people, you know, when they're looking at partnerships, I use the analogy of marriage. It's like you, you definitely need to date a while, you know, before you get married, get to know each other. And the other analogy I like to talk about in terms of the GP team is kind of a, a rock band analogy of, you know, rock band, you've got a lead singer, you've got a guitarist, you've got a drummer, like at least, and they all play unique roles. And so if you had, you know, three lead singers and no guitarist or, or drummer, the band is not going to work very well. Right? right. So that's the other thing of being you know honest about, I would say not only what you can do, but what you want to do, or maybe even more importantly, what you don't want to do. And everybody being honest about that, you know, upfront that way that you've got a rock band that uh, sounds good when everybody's playing together. That I think that's such a great point. That's such a great point. And this Industry is so different than a lot of other industries. You know, I think that outside of this investing world, um, people are pretty tight-lipped about money, you Mm -hmm. know, about how much money you have, what your net worth is, what your liquidity is. And all of a sudden I got involved here and people were like, well, you're talking about possibly partnering, you know, where do you stand? Like what, what's your financial, you know, wherewithal, what, what's your net worth? What can you bring to the table? Um, and like you said, what do you want to do and what do you want me to do? And people have those conversations really, really fast. And then they make a decision really fast as to this is a good fit for me or not. You know, if it's not a good fit, it's like, thank you very much. But you know, I like doing those same things and I'm looking for somebody that likes this piece and they just move on, you know? And if they do think there's a synergy, then it's, Hey, let's get to know each other better, you know? And, um, and then move forward from there. So I think that's a great, great point. So the other thing that I remember from going to all these events and I, whenever I talk to you, I'm like, I'm always picking your brain. Like, Hey, what, what mastermind are you in? What, Cause you're always doing something in addition to like some people join a multifamily mentorship group and that's, that's all they do. And that's great. But there's other people you included that look at, okay, that's one facet, but I'm also going to have self-development in these different areas. And so you get involved in other areas as well. So talk about some of those other areas and why do you do it? Sure. Well, that's a great question, Darren. I mean, you know, kind of going back to that conference with Robert Kiyosaki, that was, that was really the, you know, the, the match that, you know, lit the fire around the personal development side as well of like, oh, wow, there's all of this stuff that's out there when you've got, you know, people like Zig Ziglar and Jim Rohn and Brian Tracy and Dennis Waitley, uh, Darren Hardy. And, you know, I, I wasn't really, uh, exposed to any of those folks, uh, before and over time I did. And I started realizing that, oh, wow, there's, there's a lot of wisdom that's already been out there and a lot of tools and processes, um, 
that you can you know, learn from and leverage over time. And then also part of the way that I got into that was getting involved in different groups and, you know, so, you know, proximity to, you know, big thinkers is, is powerful and it starts to, starts to make you thinking bigger and, you know, expanding your horizon, maybe something you didn't think about. And so it's just kind of been this like, you know, daisy chain of, you know, learning and going and, and connecting more dots, uh, with people. And, you know, for example, uh, you know, I'm in a multifamily mastermind, uh, but I'm also in, um, you know, another mastermind with Kyle Wilson, which is actually publisher of three books that I've co-authored and, um, wow, that's awesome. Yes. So, uh, but point being is, is that's just another example of, you know, through being connected with, with that group. Uh, just like with multifamily 11 years ago, I didn't, I didn't know that I could do it. And writing a book was never on the the radar, but you know, you get connected with other people and an expanded mindset and like, Oh, wow, I, I can't do this with some, some cool people. And, and uh, you know, so through Kyle Wilson and his group, we, uh, we did that. And so now, I'm, you know, three time number one, Amazon bestselling author, which is amazing. That, that's awesome. You know, Look, there's you were a management consultant with Anderson um, and then Accenture um, for 20 years, you said? Yeah, 20 years total. I was about a decade at Accenture. Then I was at uh, North Highland and I finished my career at Gartner Consulting. Okay, so running a strategy practice. I mean, I think there's some people that can come out of that background and be pretty confident in themselves that they've, you know, I've worked in all these different companies. I have all these different CEOs that would, you know, of major companies that would take my advice. And why do I need to go invest my own money and my own time to listen to other people, you know, mm-hmm. but you didn't take that, you know, that way you, you took it like, look, there's other people out there that have done some things that I may want to do. And why not learn from them? And I think that that, I think that's the the difference between people that really see value in doing masterminds and going to conferences and networking and people that kind of on the outside and they're like, oh, they just want my money. Right. So if I go to a conference and there may be seven speakers and four of them, I'm like, I didn't get anything out of that, right? But then all of a sudden, the next one says something. And I just get that one idea. And I'm like, hey, if I took that one idea and I applied that to my business, that would have a huge impact. And that makes it all worth it. You went to this Kyle Wilson mastermind. You you didn't even think about writing a book. Yeah. Right? Not at all. And now you're co-author of three best-selling books. That's that, yep. that's amazing. Yeah, amazing. And just to just to piggyback on something you just said, you know, you were talking about, hey, you go to a conference and you never know what you're going to learn. And I, I know, you know, it's like sometimes let's say there's a, something going on locally, and it's you know, it's after a long day and you're tired, and you're like, oh, hey, you know, maybe I'll just skip that one and. I've learned it's like just showing up 
It's because every time when I'm like really tired or I'm just like, oh, I'll just skip that call or, you know, whatever. Uh, I always, I always learn something new. I always meet somebody new. I always get some kind of value from it that I never expected. So, you know, just what you're saying of, you know, showing up and then, you know, having an open mind and it's amazing what, what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, learning something new. That's an interesting, you know, phrase. We go to school and we're forced to learn, like you went to engineering school, right? And mm-hmm. you're forced to learn certain subjects. And I know for me, I, I hated that I had to do it. Right. And you, but you kind of have to do it. And, and so you go through all these years, all the way through high school and, you know, through college and you're forced to learn at what they want to teach you. And then some people, when they graduate, they just stop learning, you know, but the cool part is when you get to choose what you want to learn. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you went to that Robert Kiyosaki, you know, conference and it, you know, lit a light bulb in you. And then you went and found a mentorship group and multifamily. And then you went, you know, with Kyle Wilson's group and, and you just keep kind of expanding what your possibilities are. And, you know, look, multifamily investing is for some people and it's not for everybody. Right. But, you know, a lot of people think it's out of their reach. And if you surround yourself with people that have already done it, then you, you have a much better chance of thinking, you know what, if they can do it, I can do it. Absolutely. That's probably one of the biggest things of being around with people that have already done it. And you, you realize, Oh, everybody's got, you know, different backgrounds and, you know, like, yeah, like just, you said, like other, like a regular person, just like me and, you know, with focus actions over time, you can make it happen. Yeah. That's huge. And then people, I think there's some people out there that are skeptical and they think, okay, well, the guru, the, the one that's teaching, the one that's already done it, like, why are they bringing in other people to the fold? And, you know, they just want my money. Look, I, I don't think there's many people that are going to set up conferences and that are going to set up masterminds and dedicate themselves and commit without having some kind of financial reward. Um, but sure. most of the people that I've met, you know, what really drives them is they truly want other people to succeed at what they've succeeded with. And a lot of them have enough money that they don't have to do this, right? They could go sit on a beach and just keep it to themselves. So I'm thankful that they're out there teaching everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, a lot of fantastic people out there with the heart of teacher. And it's like, Hey, they've got a God given gift uh, in knowledge and they just, want to share it and they they just love seeing people succeed you know through that so i agree with you that's huge so hey you guys you and jack both have um a similar mentality that um you guys are kind of focusing i think you confirm if i'm wrong um kind of shifting away from bc assets to a quality assets so one you know am i right that you guys are doing that two you know why Sure. 
Great question. So the answer, first answer is yes. Yes, we both grew up in the, the B and C value add um, you know, market and the very first or several deals I did were pretty deep value add. I mean, they were <laughs> they were beautiful piece of crap profits when we <laughs> I'm bought like, them. describe what that means. <laughs> <laughs> what did it look like well, before? Yeah, so I'll give you a couple of I'll try to paint a couple of pictures. So you know, one is if you've never been in a 1960s C-class property that has a lot of deferred maintenance and really hasn't been taken care of for a long time, uh, they kind of have a certain smell, one. And if you've been in one, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, once you're there, I'm like, okay, got it. <laughs> That's what um, I'm talking about. Right. Um, but like, just to give you a, a story, you know, one, one apartment complex we, that we bought uh, several years ago when we were doing due diligence and, you know, we walk every unit and, you know, several of these units were pretty poor shape. And I remember talking with one resident as we were looking at his unit and, you know, it had his, uh, you know, his shower enclosure and he had, he had put uh, uh, the plastic all along where the, the tile was supposed to be and, you know, duct tape and kind of did some things and, and the point being is he did that and he was telling me how he finally got it to where his shower wasn't leaking uh, to his living room downstairs and how you know proud he was that he did that. But if you kind of looked at it, you're like, like, seriously, this is this is how it is and they they won't fix it. So that's just one example. Um, you know, so point being is uh, that that's where we started. And, you know, when we started. Uh, 10 years ago, over 10 years ago, you know, there was a, a pretty big spread in the uh, cap rate between uh, A class and C class properties. What, what was an that easier spread? way to think of that? Oh, shoot. It was probably at least 300 basis points, depending upon the deal. So a cap rate for an A property might be what back then? Five, five or six. Back then it was probably around five. five and then, yeah, five or six. And then, and, um, a, you know, a C property would be kind of an eight cap. Yeah, eight, eight to nine. Eight to nine cap. Yeah. Okay. You know, back back these these properties. You know, back in in uh, 2012, 2013. So point being is, is we were able to buy them uh, at a much lower cost and uh, get get financing on them. So there was there was a lot of margin and spread to be made you know, through that as we were improving the properties. Well, as time has gone past and, you know, we focus primarily in the Dallas-Fort Worth uh, market. So, and, and also across the country, cap rates across asset classes is really compressed. So now you look in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and it might be, you know, 25 to 50 basis points uh, difference. So that's, that's a huge difference. So it's, you know, it's like, hey, if, in general, if I'm putting a dollar in to, to buy a property, like I'd much rather buy something that's newer, nicer, newer, nicer in a, a well-located area versus something that's, you know, 50 years old and has a lot of deferred maintenance. Right. So that was kind of a hypothesis. And, you know, I was talking about it for you know, two years of, you know, because everybody that, you know, I was around, we all grew up in the same way in the, the BNC value add space. And so we always say, oh, you can't make any money you know, off the A-class properties, they're too expensive or whatever. Well, you know, the market changed. 
but at the same time, uh, the barrier to entry to getting into the A-class properties is much higher. It's a whole different, you know, group of uh, brokers that that do these properties. It's a whole different level of of price point, hard level different of you know hard earnest money that you have to put in there. You know, you start you know competing with uh, some small institutions, and so it's just a uh, you know even though the relative cap rate is is uh, getting closer, the barrier to entry is higher. And so it was you know when we first did it, it's like it was a you know daunting task, but we we're like we said hey we're going to do, we're going to buy this, you know, told the broker, you know, give us a chance to demonstrate we can execute. And, uh, we did. And so now, you know, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're in that game and we're working on our, our second really nice A class property. Awesome. Awesome. And that's another example of solving a problem, right? I mean, you're, you're going from BC, you come up with a strategy that, Hey, let's, let's, let's go after a, but then you realize that there's a higher barrier to entry and, and you're, Rather than just, you know, put your tail between your legs and go back to the BC, you say, what do we need to change? What do we need to modify? What do we need to learn in order to compete in this, in this area? So that, that's huge. Um, hey, talk about, um, I think the definition of value add has kind of changed. Um, mm. You know, people, you, and you talked about it, People talked more about BC um, as value add and, and the A's not so much. Um, but I'm, I see deals come across my desk all the time now that are A properties that are being pitched as, as value add. And, you know, the value add could be that they were built in the, you know, early 2000s and, um, they just, they're ready for the next round of, of renovations. Um, but I think that even over the last year, year and a half, it's changing such that it's not, you don't even have to do the rehab. It's like, okay, well, there's just so much loss to lease because if somebody rented 12 months ago, their, you know, lease payment is 20% less than it, the guy who's leasing now. So all we have to do is kind of, you know, re release to at higher rates and they're not even putting rehab in it. So kind of talk about what you're, you, you've been in a lot longer than I have, um, what you've seen in that definition of value add. Yeah, it's a really great observation. So I would say in the end, if you, if you talk in economic terms, you know, it's what, 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 what additional value can you put into the property that uh, your residents would be willing to pay for that additional value? Um, and so, you know, in the BNC world, when I was talking about a property that was just completely neglected, well, it's just just kind of putting it together and you know, having tile that doesn't just, leak to the to the downstairs, right? So people are willing to pay more for that. It's like, okay, I can kind of get my head around that. But so let's talk about, you know, value add for uh, A-class properties. So we talked about Uptown at Cole Park, which is the one we bought last year. So it's a 2016 uh, podium tile cell asset in uh, Uptown Dallas. So fantastic area. And you go look at the property and you say, oh, this, this property is beautiful. And it is. Well, so there's a couple things going on there is 
there was a lot of deliveries, new deliveries in the market, which is creating a lot of concessions. And so when we were looking at it, you look backwards, there was a lot of concessions. Um, but looking forward, there weren't. And so exactly what you said, Darren, is there was a lot of loss to lease to burn off. So burning off that loss to lease in terms of, you know, that that right there is a value add in terms of the economics of it. But, you know, then also we actually brought in an architect and designer and we're doing several really cool things to the property. You know, uh, you know, for example, where we're painting a mural on the outside and so it's going to be transformed from just another building to now it's gonna be like oh it's like a landmark and people recognize the building and so it's it's cool and then and then we've you know this is kind of a, a interesting story i would say is um you know it has air-conditioned uh interior hallways and they were they were you know they were nice uh but it had this kind of dim uh like dimly lit and they were this kind of mint green color. So it kind of looked like a, a hospital hallway and then, you know, had carpets in the hallway and there's valet trash there. So, you know, sometimes trash spills and you always have to clean the carpet. So, you know, I was like, well, you know, how could we, how could we just functionally was what I was originally thinking, um, you know, go to some type of hard surface to fix that and then, you know, brighten things up. Well, working with the, the designer, we actually created this really cool uh, four-color, like really big pieces of LVT flooring in a herringbone pattern. Uh, and then on the hallways, it's painted three different colors between the side, the top, and the side. And then we put all new lighting in it. And, you know, it's it's I'm trying to describe it as I can in words, but if you saw like before and after, they're like, oh my gosh, that's that's amazing. Well, here's the point of the value add to that is, you know, part of it started as being a, a functional way of just kind of, you know, improving some things, but from a design standpoint, it really came out uh, amazing. So for example, when we were going through, you know, renewals, there were some people that said, Oh yeah, I, I don't want to renew. And, you know, we're just kind of, well, why not? Like, Oh, well, you're not, you know, upgrading the, the hallways in my hallway versus the other floor. It's a six story building. And, you know, we're like, yeah, we're, you're, you're getting that too. And they're like, oh, okay, great. I'm really designed, you know, they signed for, you know, 25%, you know, renewal rate, and which so is they stayed. just amazing. So, so they stayed yeah. they had an amazing increase. So point being is it's like, um, you just have to get and go to problem solving. You have to think about well, what's, what's, what's valuable to your residents and from their perspective, what are they willing to pay for? And, you know, give that to them. And that's a value that, add. That's huge. I, I love what you said um, when you said, how could we? You know, I think that not necessarily knowing the answer yet, right? But like, how could we make this better? How could we solve this problem? How could we make the feeling of walking down this hallway you know, feel much nicer and, you know, you're going to home and you're proud of where you live and how could we? And then you start searching for that answer and that, you know what, for, as a real estate investor, a lot of times you don't know the answer right away, but there's another avenue where networking can come into play, you know? So you ask other people that have renovated a properties, you know, um, 
and you start asking them, calling people and, and talking to vendors that, that work on a property. And, and then you start filtering through all those different ideas that people are giving you. And then it's ultimately up to you to make the decision as to what to go with. But you don't have to have the answer right away. You know, there's a lot of people that you can pull from um, to help you get there. Yeah, that's really key what you just said, because there's a lot of people that have really specific expertise. So point being, you don't have to know everything, but, you know, if you can ask good questions, like you said, you know, network and connect with people that, you know, can, can fill that gap because, you know, I had a concept of what I wanted to do, but I needed, I needed the designer to turn that into, oh, okay, that's it. Right. So, and we, you know, we paid the designer for the design work and, you know, I was, 100% worth the investment. Yeah, that's huge. I know on, on my first syndication, I'm, I'm a business guy. I'm a numbers guy. I'm not a designer. I'm not, you know, colors and all that don't really, I don't know. It doesn't come natural to me. So, you know, I went to a few different people to look for paint colors. And, you know, the designer would come back and I'm like, no, I don't like that. Yeah, let's try it again. No, I don't like that. Let's try it again. And then have to go to a different designer. And then and then all of a sudden I get to the right one and I'm like, oh, that's it. Right? Like, even as the business guy, like, and look, I could have been wrong still, right? But that's the thing is like you can press on people that have that expertise and then you you ultimately make the decision. So nicer assets. I'm gonna bring up a couple things. Um, one was COVID, okay? You know, everybody was talking about mm-hmm. recession coming. Nobody knew it was going to be COVID. Um, when people talked about a recession, they t- people that I talked to were t- saying that, all right, the bottom 20% A's are going to flow down to the B's and the bottom 20% of B's are going to flow down to the C's to try to save money. Uh, but in COVID, you know, it was really the C's that got hurt. You know, that it was... Mm-hmm. You know, the people that were, you know, working in retail and working in restaurants and, you know, those types of um, jobs where they all of a sudden they couldn't go back to work or their hours were cut and they don't have a lot of savings and they kind of paycheck to paycheck versus people that owned a properties. They were able to work from their apartment. You know, they were able to work remote. They had higher savings rates. So the A's actually performed very well in that recession. So now we're in the midst of inflation and up the stock market going down and possibly, you know, going into another recession, uh, whether it's now or in the short to medium term. Do you foresee the same thing kind of happening? Do you think that A's are going to be impacted more or less or the same? Or what's your viewpoint on that in the next downturn? I think it'll probably be similar. It's a, to me, what you, what you were talking about, I think it's an affordability issue. So, you know, say in, you know, especially C's usually, you know, people are being qualified, you know, two and a half to three times their uh, monthly income for the rent. And, you know, if you're in two and a half to three times, 
I mean, you hit a little bump in the road and you got a problem, right? And there's just not a lot of savings. And so I think that'll still be an issue. Contrast that with, you know, let's say the property that, you know, we're buying now, you know, when you look at the rent roll, it's like the the average annual salary uh, for that building is over 150,000 a year. Right. And so, you know, when we're looking at our business plan, you know, we can see that these residents actually have the capacity, you know, to pay about three times the amount of rent that they're currently paying, which is a huge amount. It's not that they're going to. That's huge to have that type of income. Holy cow. I didn't realize that the income levels, the average income in your property is over 150 K. Yeah. And so every property is different, but you know, that's part of what, you know, and, and I would say this is, this is something to look at no matter what class of property it is. It's like understanding, you know, what is, what is the median income at the submarket relative to what the, the rental rates are at the assets you're looking at buying. Um, but also if you look at the actual rent roll and what people income actually is, as part of your diligence process, you can see what capacity they have to have increases because, you know, for example, you take, you know, the same property and let's say that, you know, even though it's a super nice property, let's say that the, you know, average income is 60,000. Well, okay. They, they, you know, for, for the rental rates, relative rental rates, well, they can maybe go up a little bit, but certainly not a lot. And so point being is having that, the wider that affordability gap is, uh, the better. So, you know, going back to your question of that's kind of the details of, yeah, when we look at assets, when we look at the capacity, uh, you know, the more capacity they have, you know, blip in the rope happens, you know, this, that, and the other, like, they're going to be okay. And, and so I think, you know, quality ACE assets and quality areas are probably going to be the least impacted. Yeah, that's huge. And, um, you know, it's also, you know, not too many people talk about it, but look, that same where your location is, if you were to go buy a house, you know, the average house price is, you know, X and you, say you have to put 20% down, you know, that differential of your mortgage payment, your taxes, your insurance, you know, that gap of, hey, do I want to live in a really high quality apartment complex with a ton of amenities? Or do I want to pay, you know, that, that much more to have my own place? And it just seems like more and more people are choosing to rent. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of places we're looking, if you go buy a house, that would be just what you said, a sim- similar level of amenities, which is really hard to recreate all the amenities that a nice A-class property has in a single family home. But I mean, it could be, you know, 1500 to 2500 maybe even $3,000, you know, more a month. So but, but it's a big difference in affordability. Yeah, that's, that's huge. And uh, what about age group? So let's talk about you know, the, your A property, are we talking about young professionals or are we talking about retirees? Are we talking about, you know, people in their forties, fifties? Like what, what, what's kind of the demographic of people that are, 
are in these eight properties? Well, it's going to depend on exactly where it's located in the submarket. For example, in in the uptown area, it's in general uh, a little bit younger crowd, younger professionals. But that being said, um, there's a lot of people that are empty nesters, and they don't want to deal with you know having the big house anymore, and they want to live in a cool area that's walkable. So, people that are looking for that kind of live, work, play lifestyle, regardless of age, or gravitate towards that. And then, of course, you've got uh, A-class properties that are purpose-built for, you know, 55 and up. And so, obviously, those are, you know, all empty nester type type folks. Um, but really, it just depends on, you know, where it's located. And, you know, say in this, you know A-class property in the suburbs, it's located, you know, in a good school district. Um, you know, usually you're going to find more two, three, four bedrooms, those type of complexes are going to be more families. So, uh, it's just point being is I don't think there's a, a cookie cutter answer, but it's just kind of, where is it in the, in the, what submarkets it in, what kind of amenities that submarket have and who does that, that appeal to? That makes to? sense. And, and, and that's part of the problem solving too, whether you're building or whether you're, um, looking at buying existing properties is knowing what that submarket demographic is and does this product set really you know meet the needs for that for that demographic um so talk about um you know if you're buying these a-class assets okay and are you looking at them the same way in terms of your exit strategy or are they longer term holds Great question. So for us, when we're looking at properties now, we're really going to get, we want when we walk, walk to a property, we say, okay, if we're looking at it, it's high quality properties in high quality areas. So we're looking to say, hey, this is an asset that we could look to hold on for a period of time. Well, what does period of time mean? So if I could see holding it at least 10 years, um, that would kind of check the box. Because what we really want to do is build up a portfolio of high quality assets and instead of selling them assuming that everything goes as planned you know we would continue to refinance them to reduce our basis you know and those properties to zero and then take those monies and go invest them in additional properties and of course you know additional loan money is not a taxable event so you know we see we see that as uh for high quality assets in high quality areas you know the right uh the right strategy and well, by the way, as we've realized, you know, it's like, oh, okay, people have been doing this 20, 30, 40 years. Like, this is exactly what they do. So it's not like, you know, reinventing the wheel, but, um, you know, you don't know what you don't but know. But you're moving from kind of, right, you're moving from that value add BC space to kind of that longer term, just hold, refi, pull out cash, go buy another one type of philosophy. And, and you know, you said 10 years. I mean, you know, there's some people I have the strategy of, I just don't ever sell, <laughs> you know, right. I'm, I'm going to buy, I'm just going to pull cash out, non-taxable event, buy something else. Um, but it, it, you, I would imagine you have to have a little different conversation with investors that it's a longer term hold um, because some investors get used to that two, three, four years, double your money, sure. you know, and 
and you know, I want, I'm going to roll it into something else. And, and so they may think like, well, man, if they're just going to hold on to this thing, it's going to be, you know, my money's tied up forever. Um, you know, but what they don't realize is, is the after tax, you know, snowball effect that can have. Absolutely. So just to give you a real example from my portfolio. So, you know, a property that expects a second property invested in. So this would have been in um, December of 2012. And, you know, it was a, I would say nice B class property and, you know, a decent area adjacent to a school and single family homes. So, you know, nothing really special about the property, but nice, clean and functional property. And, you know, it was cash flowing well. And I guess it was about three and a half years into that deal. Uh, it was a Fannie Mae loan. So we did a supplemental on it. So, you know, did a refinance, we put some capital back in the property and then put some capital in our pocket. And, you know, then two years later, so we're five and a half years in, we totally refinanced it again, put some capital back in the property and then put some capital in our pocket. And then at that point, we had actually more than double our original capital out of the property. Right. So it's, it's like getting a double on your money, but it's not a taxable event. We still own the property. It was still cash flowing. And so, oh, wow. And so then we held it for another, uh, you know, four and a half years, we actually just recently sold it. And, um, you know, so we, we owned it, you know, not, not quite, I guess it's about nine and a half years, you know, and in the end, I even think it was, it was over a five X, uh, wow. you know, multiple, but, but point being is, is that, you know, by having those refinances, we, we were pulling capital out of the property, which I was then able to put in other properties. And so just think, let this blow your mind a little bit. So that capital came on property, non-taxable. I put it, you know, in other deals and then those deals turned over. So it was, you know, basically, I don't know, say free money or loan money and that doubled and all of that was, you know, non-taxable as well. And so, um, you know, once you kind of see how people that have been doing this a while, it's kind of like, it's like, wow, it's, it's pretty amazing. It, it, it's crazy. Um, you know, I learned a long time ago that real estate, you know, it's it's a weird asset because it's an appreciating asset that you get to depreciate. And, and but I didn't take action until four years ago. But I'll, at least I'm glad I, I I took action then. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a lot of people that are, are, you know, still scared to take a chance. So, you know, what would you say to somebody that maybe is looking at getting in their first passive investment? Um, you know, how do you get over that fear? Sure. I mean, I can, I can really empathize with this. So, you know, going back, you know, it was 2001, I went to that conference and then it was, you know, I guess it was 2005, 2006 when I actually did my first, uh, you know, single family investment, which was more on the wholesale side. The point being is, you know, that was, it took you five years. It took me five years. And why is it? Well, I was afraid, right. I was afraid I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was making a mistake. I didn't want to lose money. And so, so point being is I get it. And, um, but I just kept, I kept going at it. Um, 
you know, if, if people haven't ever read the book, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, I would start there because it all starts with your mindset. And I really think that's a, a great book to help you understand high level the, the concepts. And then, you know, the second, so that's the first thing I would do is invest my education. And the second thing is, is depending upon um, what kind of um, investment you're looking to do, I would, I would seek out some, some education and training or maybe a mentor, you know, because in the end it's, you know, additional education and somebody that um, has kind of been there can help you reduce your risk. Right. Cause then, you know, they can help you avoid some pitfalls that, you know, that they already see and uh, help you avoid. And then um, it's all about making a decision and it sounds easy, but you know, you got to make a decision. And then once you make a decision, you've got to take action. And I can promise you, if you invest in your education, uh, you make a decision and you take action over time, really amazing things will happen. Um, I know we're both fans of Darren Hardy and, you know, he talks about the compound yeah. effect and it's, you know, all these little actions that you take over time, you know, compounding over time. Uh, you know, it's like, Hey, if I look back 11 years ago before I started multifamily, I never would have thought that I would have retired from my six figure, you know, corporate executive job and had my, had my calendar back and be doing something that I like and able to help people. It just, you know, wasn't the radar, but, and it didn't happen overnight either, but uh, amazing what can happen over time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's huge. Uh, Mindset, mindset, mindset. I mean, look, I had the capital and the first thing I invested in was a duplex and, you know, my wife and I, I think we had to invest like 50, 55 grand and I was scared, man. I was like, you know, I think that we as humans are just more afraid of losing than, than have the positive mindset that you can win, you know? So, but then having done the duplex, I was like, how can I go bigger? And then I surrounded myself with people that have done it. And then went from two units to 76 units and, and I know so many people that do 100, 200, 300, 500 unit deals like and it's all in your mind and what you can you can achieve but it starts with the first step, you know, the first step of all right, like Alan said, read the book, you know, or go to a meetup group or you know, go to a conference or you know, take a chance and and then one thing leads to another and then all of a sudden other people are coming to you for advice. Yeah. So, one, one additional thing I would add is yeah. we were, as we were talking was, you know, how to get started. So, you know, how I got started was after I had done those things, I made a decision and then I made my first investment. I made my first investment as an LP and you know, how, how I do it. I got to know, like, and trust some, some GPs. And I will say that, when I made that first investment, there was a whole new world of learning that happened once you started seeing the life cycle of a deal and see financial statements. You know, it puts all the, the you know theory and theory into practice. And so that was really, you know, a stepping stone, you know, when I went from, you know, LP to GP. So that's the other thing I'd probably say is, you know, get to know somebody that's got experience that you know I can trust. And uh, 
you know, make your first investment as a, as an LP. And I mean, Hey, I love my LP investments. <laughs> Got some smart <laughs> guy working hard for me. And, you know, so you want to talk about having leverage? Well, that's it. So anyways, just want to add that. That no, that's huge. Um, you know, then that, and that's scary in itself, right? Doing your first LP investment. Sure. But then, you know, it, it, you said there's nothing like having some money, your own money involved to get you learning, yep. right? I mean, you could read as many books and go to many places as possible, but all of a sudden when you're invested in that first deal, like you're paying attention to it and you're learning from it. And then all of a sudden it's, it's giving you confidence and doing the next one and, or possibly getting on the active side. So anyway, you guys are, are doing a lot of great stuff. I like both you and Jack. I think you got a great partner. Um, I think you got a great strategy, you know, kind of what's the, you've been doing it for 10 years, man. How, what's the next big stretch goal? Like, where do you go from here? Well, I mean, you want to talk about our BHAG, uh, big, hairy, audacious goal. I mean, yes. we're, we're looking to become an institution ourselves. And oh. you know, that's not going to happen overnight. But, you know, looking in the next year, we'd like to acquire, you know, 250 million, you know, in assets. So, you know, that's, that's more than, um, you know, we've done in previous years. But, you know, when you kind of break it down, it's like, all right, well, if you just go by you know, three or four more deals, like, you know, the last one, then, you know, it, there you are. And so when you start breaking it down like that, it makes sense. But, you know, looking forward, you know, over the next five to 10 years that uh, really want to have a portfolio of at least, you know, 10,000 units, high quality units. And, um, you know, like I said, just to continue to grow the company and, you know, we want to be a, an institutional player. That's huge. Listeners, listen to this. I mean, he shared in the beginning, like it took him five years to do his first investment, right? And now his goal for next year is to buy $250 million in assets. It, it does not happen unless you take some action. You have to take some action and you learn and then you keep expanding your goals. So, you mentioned it a few times. I got to hit you up on it. <laughs> You're an author, co-author on three different books. You mm -hmm. know, can you share a little bit about that? Um, and, you know, with the listeners, I mean, what, what are these books about and what, you know, why'd you get involved with them? Sure. Well, I actually have a couple sit next to me. So the very first one, let's see if I can show it here. Uh, Probably that bringing value, solving, solving problems. That's weird. And, we talked about that and, and yeah. leaving a legacy, leaving a legacy. So, you know, that really resonated with me and that's, that's kind of, you know, my story of, you know, how I grew up and, you know, starting a family earlier, early and going through my corporate career. And then, you know, I also talk about, you know, how I got invested in real estate and then kind of my journey to, retiring for that to do this full time. And then, um, you know, the next one. Persistence, pivots, and game changers. Turning yeah. challenges into opportunities. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, well, the first Forward one. Forward by Brian Tracy. I, I, I like Brian. Brian, he's, he's, uh, 
he's fantastic. He's definitely a, a leader in the, you know, self-development uh, books for sure. So, you know, that one has, you know, all kinds of cool people. And it also has, you know, stories. It's, it's not all real estate related. It's like, for example, Phil Collin, who's the lead guitarist for Def Leppard. You know, he has a story in there. And Glenn Morshauer, who's in all kinds of, um, you know, acting roles, including 24. I mean, if you saw me, definitely recognize him. But point being is it's, it's, it's all across the board. In that book, you know, they talk about how uh, – there's something, some pivot that they had, some, some, some little new idea that became a game changer, or they just had some, some challenge and how they persevered through it. And so, um, you know, that's what that was about. That's why that kind of resonated for me. And then, you know, uh, with Jack, Jack saw what I was, was doing with this and he said, Hey, I want to, I want to be uh, part of that. And so actually he's one of the co-authors for the latest one, which is think big, think big. So, you know, and, and that one, I, you know, he, it's all stories about, Hey, we're thinking big. And, you know, I shared, you know, some of it of like, Oh, well, you know, think about 11 years ago, I didn't know anything about multifamily, you know, and then I was in B and C and never thought I would do A's and now I'm doing A's and, and, you know, we're looking forward and looking to be an institutional player and, you know, uh, you know, help a lot of people along the way. One of the big things I don't think I mentioned, but I, I, I really like kind of like we had that light bulb go off of mindset of like, Hey, there's another way. And just all the amazing advantages that, you know, are available with multifamily investing. Um, just helping people turn on lights, kind of like with my parents, you know, they were, they were, uh, you know, small business owners actually had a, you know, automotive shop and, repair business. And, you know, I thought to myself, wow, I think they're going to, you know, work until they can't work anymore. And, you know, I got them involved in some of my investments uh, years ago and, you know, they were actually able to retire four years ago uh, as well from that. Good for them. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's, that's pretty cool. You know, when you can, you know, help people change their mindset and, <laughs> It was definitely a mindset change for my parents. I had to kind of drag them along to begin with, but uh, now they're, you know, all in. Absolutely. I, I think, um, one, it's, I've learned from other people in the real estate world, like, look, you got to take responsibility for your own money, right? Don't just hand it over to, to somebody else. Don't just hand it over to, to the stock market, you know? You need to learn about where you're investing your money, and take responsibility and be accountable for that. And when you do that, you know, you see different alternatives that you can do. And, um, you know, partly I'm like, shame on me for, you know, years and years and years, I, I fell into that world and I just parked, you know, money over into the stock market and mutual funds and ETFs. And, and then, um, you know, I, I couldn't believe what is out there, you know, in the, in the multifamily real estate world. And look, there's a lot of other different investments sure. out there too. Um, you know, private placements, whether it's, you know, individual businesses or, um, you know, hotels or resorts or self-storage. I mean, there's all these different asset classes. Um, but educate yourself and surround yourself with some other people that, that will motivate you to, to actually take a chance. So what do you like to do outside of work, man? Well, you know, uh, 
It's a great question. So I now have, you know, two adult children. So daughter's How old 22 are they? and my son's 20. daughter's 22. So she's finishing up her last year, year of uh, interior design school. So it's uh, fun fact, fun fact aside, she's actually going to create some, some artwork for uh, our properties, which we have, you know, local awesome. artists. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty cool. Um, and then uh, my son is about to turn 27, actually, this week. So uh, he also went to Texas A&M, and I tried to talk him out of studying engineering, but he wanted to do it anyway, and he's an engineer at Texas <laughs> Instruments, and he really likes it. And, you know, for both of them, I've exposed them to, you know, multifamily investing over this period of time. And, and so, you know, my son actually made his very first investment in uh, my last deal, and so he's you know, very proud to say that he's a, a multifamily owner, which is, I think back, I'm like, wow, if I had started my investing in this at 26, wow, where would I be? Oh, but exactly. But uh, exactly. So point being is, is that, you know, looking backwards, it's did a lot of outdoors activities with the kids, you know, of course, sports and, and, uh, you know, Indian Prince with my daughter. And then she was, competitive in volleyball and track. And so we did all of that. And then my son, you know, he was in scouts and I was a scout leader. So we've been all over the place doing that kind of stuff, hiking, backpacking. Um, so point being is, um, you know, when my son graduated in 2018 and when I retired from the corporate world, um, it was, it was June, you know, four years ago. And so both of us, we took a, backpacking trip to Yellowstone. And so we spent, uh, you know, a week and a half in the backcountry of Yellowstone. Did you really? The, yep. Seeing all the beautiful sites. So, you know, in the end, I, you know, we like experiences. Uh, you know, my wife and I, we like, we like the beach, you know, if you can get uh, the mountains in the summertime and, you know, some beach and, you know, a little snorkeling and stuff. But uh, in, in the end, you know, outdoors and it, experiencing different, uh, you know, places around the world, different cuisines and, you know, just, just getting to know kind of the, the local people. That's, that's what we like to do. I'm impressed that you actually went back country in Yellowstone with your son. That's, that's huge. I mean, um, I I've done Yellowstone, but through <laughs> with a car driving around. Um, and so to go, you know, backpacking camping through, you know, back country, that's, that's pretty awesome, but I'm sure that that's a memory that you guys will, you know, be imprinted in your memories for, for a long, long, long time. Yeah. One quick funny story, uh, really that I just thought of. So obviously you, whenever you go on a backpacking trip in the backcountry, you check in with the Rangers, say, Hey, this is what we're going to do. And you know, what's the feedback? And you know, the Rangers said, oh, okay, this looks good. You know, you can walk along here and you can cross the river here. And, uh, you're like, okay. So we're eight miles into what we were supposed to be a 16 mile day. And we started early and we got to the river and it was early June. And so what was supposed to be a river crossing, I guess maybe in late August or September was the Yellowstone river. And it was probably about a hundred yards across and running. So basically, you know, oh. we were crossing that we were going to die. So needless to say we did. So then we had to like, solve some problems. We looked at the map and like, Oh, well, there's a bridge across the river about four miles down river. And so we had to go four miles down river up and down and then four miles up river. So, you know, the 16 mile day turned into, 
I think it was like 23 or 24 miles. And wow. Man, by the time we got, we rolled into camp and we were, we were beat. But uh, point being is it's certainly an experience that, I mean, just, it's good times. You won't, you won't forget that day, that's for sure. Nope. Well, Alan, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, listeners, if, if, if you want to get to know Alan better, Alan, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, sure. The easiest way, I just send me an email at info at sapientcg.com. That's info at sapient, S-A-P-I-E-N-T-C-G.com. And, you know, if you do, uh, please tell me that you heard me on uh, Darren's podcast and uh, a little bit about yourself. And, you know, if, uh, if you'd like, I'd be happy to send you a uh, free digital copy of the, uh, the Think Big book, the one that Jack and I just did. Free book, free book there for you guys. Um, fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you sharing. Um, look, listeners, get out there and take action. Um, look, what, look what it's done for this guy. So until next week, signing off. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Darren. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.